You're listening to Dirty Feet, a dance podcast. I'm Allison Burns. On this episode of the Dirty Feet podcast, I am joined by Marie-Josée Chartier, who is presenting work and uh, including a new creation, a solo that she's performing herself here at the Ottawa Dance Directive this week. Uh, I'm so glad to be speaking with you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Now, Marie-Josée, you have um, a rich choreographic uh, history. You are an award-winning choreographer. You also work in, in different disciplines. You have, uh, including opera, which is fun. That's one that we don't see very often on this podcast. And theater and and, and music and visual arts. And, and I'm just very pleased to even just touch the tip of the iceberg <laughs> of all of those things today. Um, let's speak uh, about the start briefly, if we can, about what uh, got you. I think I think the appropriate question is into the arts in general rather than dance specifically because you are so multifaceted. It was a little bit of an accident. Um, I was uh, I was doing a um, degree in preschool education, and part of me it just started to try dance. I was already a teenager. I was interested in voice. I was interested in theater. I liked everything, but I wasn't, oh, this is what I want to do. I wasn't very clear. Um, but it all came into a small ad in a tabloid paper of this new school opening in old Montreal called Pointe de Nu. And the director was from the Moudra School of Béjar in Brussels. And, and the ad just said, theater, rhythm, dance, and I thought, this is where I'm going to go, not knowing anything about the school, the directors, and not really having anyone in my family to guide me into, you know, where to go. So I just thought, uh, that's what I want to do. And I just, you know, registered, and I was the first student actually at the school. And uh, yeah, we studied voice as much as we studied dance, and we had ballet and different types of modern techniques and rhythm and yoga, physical theater, contemporary music appreciation. So it was pretty fantastic kind of diving in all these disciplines. And really, it's only recently, maybe in the last not even 10 years, that I realized, wow, this is, has had a much bigger influence mm. than I thought it would because I, right away I focused mostly on dance and I was part of the company as a dancer. But as soon as I started making my first pieces, it was already, there was a huge visual uh, art element, design element, music element. So it was kind of a, a natural thing that I was, you know, attracted to. And one of my first pieces, I worked with a really incredible visual artist and composer. And right away that, you know, it's kind of happened. <laughs> you established your company Chartier Dance in uh, 2003 and of course this the company is is designed to to allow you to produce your work yeah. um can you tell us more specifically what what the mandate of the company is what um what an outside observer might see the mandate is pretty simple really it's to support my my creative uh activities my creative ideas um Chartier Dance is a is a name that I use when I mostly engage in really large uh, collaborations. 
uh, either nationally or internationally, when there are big projects that has a, uh, that would bring a lot of partners. And the mandate of Chatsia Dance and the mandate of myself, really, <laughs> because Chatsia Dance mm -hmm. is me, I'm I don't have any co-artistic director. I make all the decisions. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm very uh, interested uh, to have uh, a full integration of all elements. So um, I bring all the players right from the beginning. So there's uh, uh, the lighting designers, uh, costume designers, set designers. A lot of time I you know, kind of design the sets badly on paper, but I work with uh, really great builders. Um, for me, that's all part of the beginning of the seed of the work. So basically, Chatsi Dance, for me, it's, it's, it's all these elements that I am interested in. And uh, it varies. There are projects that are very small scale, and projects that are very large scale, where it's international and lots of co-productions, uh, or lots of people, or it could be a solo that has a big production value. So it totally varies, and uh, yeah, the themes vary, and uh, yeah, so I think to me that's what's important, is the integration of forms. One of the things that's important. I, yeah, I feel like I feel like scale is a, is a theme, mm -hmm. at least for my line of questioning today. Um, so let's start with with scale in terms of the the length of your career, so so looking back on some of your past works, you have you have big groups, you have you have props, you have multi disciplines involved, um, big costumes, big lights, big sound. Uh, can we talk about what your experience has been um, navigating, kind of in between those big scale things, and then doing something like a self performed solo that you're going to be doing mm -hmm. this week that is much different in scale. Mm -hmm. And, and how you determine when to do which project. Is it all based on what resources you have available to you, or is it the vision? It's a good question, <laughs> because I think uh, usually the ideas that I want to explore, when the ideas come to me, a lot of time come to me from a, a visual art kind of source. And just for the record, I've never studied visual art. I'm not really interested in doing visual art. I don't draw. I don't, you know, I don't do pottery. It's just something that really attracts me, uh, contemporary visual art. And from visiting galleries, and it's it's been an ongoing source of, of, of inspiration, if that's the right word, like triggering really uh, big images. So when I think of a work, I usually think of it first in visual ways, uh, the space, the lighting, uh, the set, if there's a set. Even the dancers, they're, they're more in the space. I don't think of it so much choreographically. Um, sometimes the music's there right away in terms of I, I know maybe with which composer I want to work with because I'm, I'm looking after something specific. Uh, sometimes there's an already existing music. Sometimes I need a sound designer because I want to bring in a lot of my vocal work into it and words. So, uh, so to try to go back to your question, uh, what happens is what is the seed of the idea that I get? And then from there, what do I need to achieve mm -hmm. it? So, for example, I've mostly done large work that are an hour or 90 minutes long with one big thematic idea that gets developed. And then if we arrive to Petit Dance, which was a huge shift for me, um, it's dancers that are 10, 
12 minutes long, um, then I, the best comparison I can give is I go from being a novelist to a short story writer, mm-hmm. which is a huge challenge in itself. So, wrap it up quick. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And But it's like every detail, I think every detail is always important, but every detail in a 10-minute work where the idea might be big uh, is, for me, it's been really challenging. And some of the, you know, I've done a series of petit dance so far, probably up to 18 of them. And uh, some of them I'm like, oh, no, 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 this is a one-hour piece, you know, when I look at how it's it just gets, bursting at the seams. Yeah, and, and it's the type. One of them is one of the dancers. A septet is more like an inst, it has an installation feeling to it. Uh, it works in eight minutes. It has its own impact, but I can also see that evolving in a gallery with twenty-five people doing it over an hour, for example. Can you tell us about the the inspiration for Petit Dance? It was a proposal, was it not? Yes. So um, what happened is in 2013, I received an award from Soul Pepper, which is a theater company, and they had dance awards. And I received a residency award for uh, for my work, and it gave me two weeks in the theater or two weeks in the studio. And so I took one week in the studio by myself, and just having access 24-7 to a studio mm-hmm. is just already... Because uh, I'm usually not somebody who likes to be in the studio that much. I, I prefer to think about things when I'm traveling, or on the bus, on the train. But like, I don't have a huge desire to be in the studio. Because for me, once I'm in the studio, means that I'm addressing the movement, the choreography, which is still to me the toughest part. So, uh, so I had a, a whole week, and and just time and space uh, has a huge impact on how we think. Mm. I mean, space, public spaces, theaters, different theaters, we feel better in some of them. Studios, we feel better. And just having this this space that I could come and go as I wished it made a huge difference. And at that time, I really was not in a creative space that much. So I just went. And then on the third day, I was looking at old videos. And I was I brought some music of my favorite Canadian composers who are contemporary music uh, composers and listening to some of those pieces that are, you know, nine, ten minutes long. And then suddenly I was having many different ideas to the same piece of music. And around that same time, I was at a concert of Linda Smith and the Evergreen Gamelon, which is the music I'm using this week, actually. And while it was playing live, I had three or four different strong choreographic ideas that were just kind of flooding me, which took me by surprise because I was not in that kind of creative space at the time. So all this put together, I went like, oh, what if I use, for example, John Sherlock's four-minute necklace piece? And then I had a series of short films on it, and then I had a dance, and Linda Linda Smith's piece in the high branches, which is what you're going to hear this week. I also created four different choreographies to it. And it happens in the same evening, and this, um, I'm going on right now to the bigger petite dance that I created after, is that how do we actually see the music, and how do we hear the dance? How do we see the music because of what happens on stage, Mm -hmm. visually, physically, how it shifts the music around? So with one piece of music that I know really well, I may accent when the string comes in or when the gamelan, you know, rumbles. 
and the next choreography, I may not uh, focus on that. So already the music sounds drastically different. Uh, so it's a very, it does a very strange thing on your perception and on your probably your nervous system how through the eyes we take in so much information i mean it'd be a great thesis for a neurologist to see mm. what actually happens and with their sense of hearing so after that soul pepper i did a small informal show and i had 10 short dances i had about i had a, over 25 performers involved uh, but it was it all had a very informal feeling to it and then I got a substantial grant to explore it on a, over almost three years. And then I decided to do eight pieces from solo to octet, solo, duo, trio, quartet. quartet. You know, I, made, I gave myself a very strict structure because I thought there's too much choice. And I chose four pieces of music. So in the first half of the program, you hear each piece of music once with one dance. After intermission, you hear the same music again with four different dances. And that people don't even notice it's the same music, even if they read it in program. I tell them it's just <laughs> just it's just a curiosity thing, right? This it's not that important, but a, a lot of audience members have told me that they know maybe the same music coming back, but there's a sense of familiarity when they see the piece. They might mm. not notice right away it's the music they heard before, but they're already in a known land, in a known landscape. So for Ottawa, I decided to uh, go back to one of those pieces and make a, a musical pairing, a jumelage. And to that, I have four men. And to the same music by Linda Smith, I'm doing uh, a solo. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you for bringing it back now. So, so <laughs> Sorry, long story. No, it's, it's such a fascinating one. So Diptych, which you're presenting at the Ottawa Dance Directive, is going to feature a study for solo and a study for quartet, as you were saying. So this brings me to another question of scale, um, especially when we're talking about how, when you're deciding what you're putting in the space, you know, you're deciding these are two different propositions, the bodies of four men and the bodies of one woman. Um, and, and also whenever whenever you go from a solo dance to to more than one person on stage, the whole game has changed yes. already. Yeah. So, so tell, tell us how that has changed from your perspective. Because I have my answer, but I would like to know your answer. What is change, you mean? In from which? a solo to any other size uh, group. Well, I think, I, I think in this case, I'm so familiar with that piece of music because I've done so many works to it that uh, moving into a solo uh, felt quite natural only because I've been, there's been so many elements working on the quartet. I have one with, for 14 dancers to that piece of music. I have one for two dancers. There's, it's kind of all informing me. And so I think what happens is um, in this program, you'll see the quartet first, and then it goes into the solo. Um, there are some elements that are similar, just uh, some breathing elements and the music, but uh, besides that, I think they're each have its, they each have their own complete uh, narrative. Not linear, but definitely, uh, there's definitely a lot of narratives going on. <laughs> and, and again, I try to keep them fairly open, but some of them, you know, especially in the men's quartet, because of the interaction of the four men, 
and the space and what we're doing with the lighting here, it has a very uh, specific location. You'll have a sense of where they are. And then when that shifts psychologically, where they drop into another world and when they come back to the world that they're in. And, um, and then, interestingly enough, because my solo is really brand new and we're exploring, you know, I was, I was talking about space, how space, how you really have to think about the space that you work in. I knew I was doing this at the odd box. So when I was in the studio, I was really thinking about that space here. Right. Mm -hmm. Of course, if it goes on tour, then you know it's a, it's a whole other ball game. But because now this is where we're going to be, I was really thinking about that space, the depth of it. So you know, for me, at one at the beginning, I'm really far away from the audience, and that is important. Uh, and then the lighting that we started working on today and yesterday a little bit is informing a whole other narrative right now because there's new possibility that's informing even how I'm approaching the dance. Because those elements are important to me. They're not important to all choreographers, you know, some, but to me they're just they're so strong. To get specific, when you, when you pare down to a single dancer, you eliminate relationships. Is there anything that needs to be done to account for that when you're choreographing for one dancer? Uh, I think my relationship is really with the space, uh, with with the space and with myself, actually. So I think that there's lots going on already. <laughs> it's there's nothing lacking in that scenario. Well, it's it's you know we spend a lot of time alone. I spend a lot of. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a lot of friends, but I spend a lot of time alone, um, which might surprise people that know me because I love to <laughs> they see you when you're not alone <laughs> yeah and it, and I have more of a social kind of uh, way of being loving to be with people but when I love to travel and I travel alone most of the time if even if if it's for work I take for myself I, I will just go to countries I don't know and I'm by myself and I do a lot of walking alone and I go places uh without knowing exactly where I'm going. So I'm quite adventurous. And I think it's interesting you're asking me this question because I'm, I realized that this solo and Stria that I presented in Ottawa, which is, is a one-hour solo, has was inspired with autobiographical and then beyond that, but has that feeling of, of, of aloneness, you know, so it's it's relevant that it's a solo. It's not yeah aloneness and also um, discovering things while I'm alone in the space. So hopefully it will open up the audience's imagination with what's happening with me on stage. Hopefully that's what we hope for to give images that are open enough, but that there's a real kind of a dramatic line that's woven through the whole piece, the same with the Quartet of Men. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure it's, what I'm looking for. This yeah, is great. and it's, it's an interesting question because I, I feel alone and I don't feel so alone either. There's lots going on, right? Because there's, there's also an audience there. Mm -hmm. And there's the lighting and there's the music and there's the space and there's myself. How am I with myself? It shifts. It's not set. I mean, it's set enough, but 
I'm in every time I do it, I'm in the moment and what happens at that moment that I'm doing it in performance and even in rehearsals. We just did it now and I discovered a new thing and I say, okay, maybe I'll stay longer in this idea. This feels better to do it that way. Can you introduce us to the, the four interpreters yes. who are dancing your quartet? Yes. Uh, Dan Wilde, who's uh, known to contemporary dance. He's danced in Winnipeg Contemporary Dancers. He's danced with dance makers. He has danced with Susie Burpee and Claudia Moore and a lot for me. And he's really helping me with the solo right now. So that's um, really great. And uh, Liri McNichols who uh, I used to dance with a long time ago, briefly at Dance Makers, and who's had also a career with Toronto Dance Theatre and in Vancouver, and has moved uh, away from Toronto, not that far to Hamilton. I hadn't seen him in a really long time, and I wanted to reconnect. So it's really great that he's uh, dancing with us. Uh, Miko Sobrera, who's got a, again, uh, has danced a lot for Claudia Moore, um, He's a salsa master, uh, has done a lot of theater, uh, and we we did he did the original quartet with me and does a lot of work. I mean, right now I'm, I'm sure I'm trying to do a very quick bio of mm-hmm. everybody, but uh, you know I'm sure I'm missing a lot. But uh, and uh, Daryl Tracy, who uh, has danced with uh, Heidi Strauss, uh, they've had this company uh, Four Chambers. Uh, dance projects um, has been part of my work quite a bit, and Daryl has done a lot of his own work as well, and is a really uh, well-known teacher in Canada and a fantastic physiotherapist as well. So, um, mm. so this is just a Tip of the ice. a small overview of yeah. what all these incredible men, um, their careers, and what they bring to the work too. They're all very mature, so it's it's really. Uh, wonderful to go in the studio with some ideas that are not that they have to get inside and it's a real exchange it's a real collaboration with the performers you know like some of the ideas I throw it out there and then we improvise on them and then we start shaping them and they bring their own they really bring their own personality to the work and because that's what interests me the personality of the performer there there's a ton of video available of your work on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> and and surfing through some of it. Um you you cast humans. There's a there's some dancers that look like dancers, but there's also dancers that look like humans in your work. <laughs> Hopefully my dancers always look like human, but I know what you, you mean. Know what yeah, I mean. yeah. 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 So did you want to talk a little bit about that? Well um again I think it goes back to how much I struggle with I struggle. It's not struggling, but with movement and choreography, because every time I approach a choreography, it's always like, oh, it's too much like dance. It's too much like what I know. It's too much. And so I'm always trying to find the movement that will be the closest to what really I'm trying to, to say or to do, to communicate. So I think the aspect that even when I work with highly, highly trained dancers, um, I'm really interested to see the real strong, deep, vulnerable human side of that dancer. And I, I catch myself not so much with these very experienced dancers that I usually work with, but I've, 
from time to time I work with less experienced dancers, like recent graduates or, you know, uh, and I catch myself often saying, okay, now I really want you to forget you're a dancer. I just forget that you're a dancer because sometimes they want to do really well and they want to make sure they do the right thing, and which is great. But I say, I want to see you. And for younger performers and younger dancers, because of the way the discipline is, it's like, oh, oh, uh, okay, because often in the training, we're not asked so much to be ourselves. I mean, we do have to learn <laughs> a lot of the technical aspects. And, you know, I, I'm very, uh, you know, I really believe in that as well. But I think I'm more interested to see the. And I've worked also with non-professional dancers. Uh, I just did a show last week with Old Men Dancing, which is a group from Peterborough. And they're all men who don't come from a dance background at all. And the average age now is 64 years old. So I, I was, uh, you know, I was helping them with a show, 13 men from 53 to 70 years old. And very demanding, actually, kind of work they were doing. And so that's interesting, too, because the, the, the non-dancerly, you know, habits or mannerisms or I don't even really want to say that too much because I think the performers I work with are so amazing and, you know, they, they really bring themselves and the, the, the technicalities they have is almost uh, is a consequence. It's not the main thing that you see. But with these men, it's, it's their, you know, they have themselves to offer. And then what we work on is more precision, you know, working on the spacing and sometimes in just clarifying things that in performance are a little bit different than in everyday life. So, and then there's everything else in between. <laughs> that, you know, different, different projects bring me with different types of performers with different types of experiences. Awesome. <laughs> True uh, keeps me, uh, you know, you can't fall on habits. I constantly have to figure out how to work, how to direct. Mm -hmm. Or like when I work with, I work a lot with opera singers, right? That's a whole other way of approaching the movement. That's great. That's yeah. actually where I wanted to go next okay. was into opera because uh, when you get into singing, you are doing something physical, and I don't have experience with singing and with opera, but I'm wondering if you found your your dance background to be advantageous when you're when you're singing, when you're performing, when you're doing opera. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I've I've worked a lot with opera singers who do uh, classical roles and also do contemporary music and also do baroque. Uh, but myself, when I started dancing, uh, voice studies was part of our training. And then I was part of a fantastic collective for 15 years called Urge. And in Urge, you have Fides Kruker, who was an opera singer at the time, still sings and teaches a lot. And Linda Smith is a composer, and Catherine Duncanson is a performance artist. And we had many members join us for different productions. And uh, there's been a huge... Um, background in uh, extended vocal technique where we approach the sound as the sound of what the voice can make. So there's that also has a particular training, but it's uh, that whole uh, gamut, array of how to approach the voice. So of course, when, I, when I'm working with my colleagues in that world, 
is is a particular way of approaching the work. When I've I've since 2000, I've been working a lot with opera singers. Uh, to some of them are naturally. I mean, like you say, the voice is the body. But I think a lot of the repertoire and often the way that the voice, classical voice, can be taught has a the body is not as involved, and um, they are on stage, but often through the training. So, um, you know, I know I'm always careful what I'm saying right now because I don't want it to seem like um, it's just, you know, it's just part of the discipline. So once these seniors get into doing roles, again, it depends. If they're doing a very, very classically stage opera, uh, there will be movement, but it'll be more like blocking on stage, but they may not do anything extravagant. But if you have the same classical opera staged by a very contemporary director, well, I've seen that these singers roll around and climb scaffolding because the voice actually is very physical. People think you can't move when you want to sing very well. It's actually the opposite. You use your weight, you use your body, and you can do. So when I work with singers, what helps me to work with them is I have a background in voice, not necessarily the same that they do, but we do get quite physical. And then when I work on productions that I'm directing with opera singers, I never hire dancers. I I do the work with the singers on stage. They're the ones who will embody I've had an opera where they they're embodying dogs or they you know they're people or they're completely the opposite of what their personality is. So um I'm gonna embark on something like that again in June. So it's 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 really observing how those singers are, how do they stand? And instead of going like, oh, I wish they were more like this, or they're not, let's say somebody's not very flexible. Ah, how can I use the fact that they're not flexible? And how can I enhance this into their, hopefully they're well casted in their part, <laughs> you know, but uh, I think it's a whole study of, uh, of study of the person, of the interpreter. Because you also want to put them in a real confident place so that they're willing. But most of the time, the projects I'm involved in, the singers just love to move, and they just want to do things on stage. So it's not difficult to get them to those places. That's cool. Uh, and you made me think of, of like, uh, Pink, the pop star, and how I've never seen her in concert, but apparently Ooh. Pink. Oh, Pink. Yeah, I've never seen she's her. She's just like an yeah. acrobat while yeah. she's yeah. running around singing and just doing yeah. all sorts of crazy physical well, things. Well, you think of children, this kind of screams of high voice or low voice, or it's all coming out of their bodies while they're doing. And, you know, that's also, <laughs> you know, the approach mm-hmm. of people in pain. They're not thinking about what sound they're making. And they might do corded sound where you hear more than one note because it's really coming from deep, deep down in your body. But we lose that ability because we're, you know, a lot of time in society, we're told to shut up. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, you, you don't sing the right note, so just, you know, just mime the words if you're in a choir. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've heard all, all the stories when we would give workshops, you know, people who were so shy about the voice. Mm-hmm. So it's a whole other, you know, it's part of your body. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm just about ready to wrap up. Yes. But before I give details about the show again, is there anything else you'd like to say, Marie-Josée? Um, I just want to see a lot of people come to the show. <laughs> that's all. I mean, that's what we do, you know. It's something we want to share. So hopefully uh, people will be curious to come and see and 
see what they they get from it, how they they uh, absorb it, mm-hmm. how they uh, get affected by it. Hopefully, <laughs> wonderful. So that is diptych, which is playing at the Odd Box here in Ottawa. And it's going to include Study for Quartet and Study for Soloist, both choreographed by Marie-Josée Chartier, who I've been speaking with today. And it's actually a double bill. It's a double bill, yeah. So there's also going to be a performance by Jacqueline Etier, which has been choreographed by Peggy Baker. All three of those works will be yes, presented. Yes, and it's a 7.30 performance. 7.30, yes. and it's May 11th, 12th, and 13th, 2017. Hope to see you there. Thank you. You've been listening to Dirty Feet. I'm Alison Burns with a few thank yous. First to Paula Flalo and the No More Radio Network. Also to Mainline Theatre and Montreal Improv Theatre. And to all present and past team members who can be found on our website, dirtyfeetpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Stick around for a preview of our upcoming episode. Sarah, do you want to live forever? Um, you know, this is actually a question that I've been terrified of my entire life. Like, I get very stressed. When I read this is the theme of your fundraiser, I was like, oh my god. Because no, I don't, and yes, I do.